That's right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> For the first time. I, <laughs> I, I knew it was going to be Cobra yeah. right when, uh, between the music and when they said, uh, you know, society's breeding a new kind of yeah. criminal and a new kind of cop. <laughs> I had never seen this movie until Saturday night. I don't know what took what? me so long. Yeah. Insane. I know. Uh, it was, And it was so much fun, too. <laughs> It's just, oh, uh, man. yeah, Cobra is yeah. a classic. So, I you just, mean, in all the years we lived together, and all the years I've been going on about Stallone or whatever, yeah. at no point did you just grab either my VHS or the DVD or nope. whatever. We never just <laughs> watched it together or put nope. it on or anything. No, nope. I watched that movie probably every couple of years. I know, like or feel. especially there back then a, when I was right. <laughs> there was an opening scene that seemed kind of familiar, but other than that, the rest of the movie did not, uh, seem familiar when he goes into his apartment and he kind of like shoots his remote at the tv like that's how he turns on his tv <laughs> with his shades on something about that looked kind of yeah. familiar from when we when we lived together but yeah you don't remember that... the the opening scene which is awesome but it's a dirty harry ripoff but it's that part where he's like in america there's a rape every you know two oh murder yeah. every 30 seconds and then uh yeah, yeah. I, I forget how it all, but then eventually, you know, he shoots his, his gun at the, but, but it's, yeah, it's just a close up of his awesome gun with the Cobra and the, mm-hmm. and the white handle and his voiceover. And yeah, it's very much like a, a Magnum force type. Opening, sure. But yeah, we were talking about that movie a little bit, uh, at a couple episodes ago where I mentioned that Rennie Santoni is, you know, he's the bad guy in Dirty Harry, but he's a Cobra's, uh, captain or her lieutenant or whatever. And we got, uh, in that movie. Yeah. Andrew, Andrew <laughs> Robinson. Is the bad uh, Reddy San- sorry, Harry. yeah. Reddy Santoni's yeah. his partner. Partner, yep. Like he was the partner to Dirty Harry, and right, yep. Andrew Robinson was the bad guy in Dirty Harry. He's the captain. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a very, it's a definitely trying to update uh, Dirty Harry for the yeah <laughs> for the '80s crowd. Yeah, <laughs> there's some good little some funny lines about how judges never, you know, judges just let people out and they'll just right, be back right. out on the streets and <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, uh, you you enjoyed it? I I, take I enjoyed it. it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was it wasn't giving. Uh, you know, you didn't have to um, think much about it, but it was still a lot <laughs> no, of. No, you don't. <laughs> it was still a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I I guess what I was trying to mean is that they don't really give Stallone much to do. There's not much. There's not much background on who he is, and uh, he's just right. kind of a badass cop. And there's a great, really great car chase scene in that movie that made me yell out loud to no one that the eighties really know how to do car chases. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem, man. If you say it, nobody's around to hear it. Nobody yeah, exactly. is, gets educated. <laughs> right. <to>. right. <laughs> yeah, no, I've yeah. always loved that movie. I mean, I, I can agree with every uh, criticism of it, I suppose that I've seen, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a ball of ball of fun and it's got so many iconic little moments and scenes at grocery store. Uh, <laughs> scene right at the beginning yeah what's he say i'm gonna blow Super this place up and he's like i don't shop here or something he's like, like go that. ahead i don't shop yeah <laughs> and he he slugs a beer you know before he oh, talks yeah. it, at the guy as a distraction <laughs> right he didn't even really distract him that well either it was just kind of yeah yeah, that was well, funny. He, had, he, wanted to, he wanted to slug a beer. Yeah, um, exactly. at the end in that uh, in that factory or whatever, because all uh, '80s, 90s oh, of course, movies have to end in a, a 
abandoned factory or something with like fire and molten lava yeah. dripping around and right. big cranes going by with hooks and stuff. Yeah, the guy who plays the Night Stalker or whatever too is awesome in that. Uh, he was in, and this is another reason why I thought you might have seen it. He was in an episode of um, NYPD Blue or something back in the day that we were watching, and I remember being like, "That's the the Night Slasher or whatever." Is from Night Cobra. Stalker. What's what's the name of the killer? Yeah, from Cobra. Yeah, he's Jeff, the uh, yeah. Robinson. Not Jeff Cobra. No, that's, oh, no, that's the guy from uh, uh, the First Power and. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I was he's another guy with just a big up. jaw and a yeah, yeah right, <laughs> spooky face and a big jaw. Uh, Brian Thompson is the night slasher. Brian Thompson, yes, yeah, yes, very yes. unique face. Yep, he's uh, yeah. It's always funny to young. see those guys in in something right. else. But. Um, well, this is a podcast called The Big Four O with Ron and Peter. I'm Ron. I'm Peter. Uh, so Cobra came out in 1986 so that is not a movie we're <laughs> talking about uh today maybe in in three years we'll maybe in three years we'll cover it more at length proper just... review yeah <laughs> yeah no this it's cool was, that uh, you, you watch it yeah i thought you were going to tell me that you watched um devil's advocate because we were talking about that one oh. last week but oh by the way that's on tubi i noticed so it's it's free if is you it all right don't don't own it in three different formats the way I do, but uh, you can... <laughs> all right. <laughs> but feel free to dial it up. We can tack it on in the next one. Um, anyway, this week uh, it, it's June tenth, uh, twenty twenty three, which means we're looking at movies that came out uh, June tenth of nineteen eighty three. The big ones this weekend are Octopussy, the Roger Moore James Bond. Uh, this is his uh, second to last one as james bond i believe a view to kill is after this and then more is done and timothy dalton takes over for two movies and then it's uh pierce brosnan and daniel craig um which is funny in 40 years we've only had three other bonds right (laughs) but i guess in 40 years there's been four bonds total so that's i mean that's i guess a lot of bonds when these movies only get made every well, now they're made a lot less frequently than they were back in the 70s and 80s, I guess. But Man, um, 70s and 80s, and, they're pumping them out. Yeah, every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, there was just a lull when they swapped guys, it seemed like. But it wasn't, wasn't until the 90s where every sequel seemed to start to take, you know, three or four years to make, which is probably for the best anyway. But um, Definitely. And then... The other movie uh, this weekend is Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places, uh, which I guess has become something of a, a Christmas uh, canical <laughs> film. I, I, I don't know if I, I guess I can see after it. There's, right. <laughs> there's a, it takes place around there's the holidays. Trees. There is a Christmas yeah. party. Yeah, there's, a, there's yeah. a Santa in there. I mean, okay, I guess it's tethered as closely as, you know, Die Hard or anything else. But <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, they both opened June tenth of nineteen eighty three. Um, Peter, uh, yeah, had had you seen either one of these before? I have no, seen Octopussy. I don't have to ask you that yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'd seen Octopussy probably four or five times, mainly as a ten to eleven wow. year old, and uh, okay, because I was really into Bond back then. And Trading Places, I had never seen the whole way through, so today was my first time seeing it beginning to end. I had seen many parts of it, but never the some of its parts or whatever the expression is yeah yeah i've never really been a bond guy so i never saw octopussy i I, i've seen all the ones that came out in the time i've been alive probably 
which, well, I mean, okay, I was alive for Octopus, but at the time I was alive and able to care to to go see a James Bond movie. So I think I sure. saw both of the Daltons on video when I was a, you know, nine or ten year old or whatever. And then I saw all the the Brazens and, and Craigs in theaters. Um, I like them well enough to catch one every four years, but I was never galvanized to go back and watch right. all the Conneries and Roger Moore's. Although I've seen a handful of those, maybe maybe two or three Conneries and two or three Moore's, but I, I don't think I've ever seen Octopussy. Okay. Um, trading places. Ask. Trading places. I don't think I ever saw either until a couple of years ago. I finally decided to rent it and, and watch it and check it out. So I, I have seen that one and I've seen it fairly recently. Um, but it still felt fairly fresh. There was a lot of stuff in there that I didn't really remember other than just sort of the general plot trajectory and some of the more memorable scenes. So it was, it was fun sure. to watch that one again. But uh, I guess we decided we're going to start with uh, Trading Places. So you yes, you said you'd never seen it before, at least not never, all the way never. through. What were your um, initial thoughts on it? So, um, yeah, the, you know, watching it at this point of view for this podcast, the, you know, the first things that are sticking out to me are the uh the John Landis directing and the uh the Elmer Bernstein score is both those things are very much kind of like the beginning of Animal House like there's just kind of that feel and that camera like the look and feel yeah. of it and uh and even well Blues Brothers is obviously a way different movie but still there's there's definitely a tone when it comes to John Landis films and so I was kind of excited to to see you know what came of this and you know, John Landis is known uh, for better or worse for being an, an outlandish director. He has some really wacky shit, and there's no shortage of that in this. But at least in this, he doesn't have like a police chase with 90 cop cars and flying <laughs> right. off, you know, the Hone Bridge or whatever. <laughs> and like, uh, so it's a more understated but still crazy John Landis movie. Um, that being said, I thought Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. And pretty much everybody in the cast, Jamie Lee Curtis, everyone was was good. There's obviously some very dated stuff, <laughs> and there's obviously yeah. some uh, you know some some of the jokes don't land fully. So, but it was it's still yeah. a good time. I'd I'd watch it again if somebody wanted to watch it. Yeah, the movie has a pretty interesting or in depth um, backstory, at least on on just Wikipedia, which you don't typically see when you start looking up these movies, but it's got all kinds of stuff about, uh, you know, how it was written, you know, what it was initially written for, and then the casting and, and all that. It's, it's got a, it's got a pretty interesting, I'll, I'll kind of get into some of it, but um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one and I think I enjoyed it not so much as a comedy, but as, I mean, it, it's funny and there's funny stuff in it and I laughed and I, I do like it as a comedy, but the, the, silly stuff sort of bookends the movie that you know there's the the goofy stuff at the beginning that kind of sets the whole plot in motion which I'll, I'll kind of go through in a second and then there's the stuff at the end where they're they're kind of uh, you know working their way out of the the plot or to the the obvious resolution and, and all that and that's where the movie is a little more uh slapstick and slapdash and sure and that sort of thing but i thought all the stuff in the in the middle that is more kind of about um you know, race and class and, and all that was a lot more interesting than uh, you would give a, a comedy credit for. And I was a little surprised to find out that that's, that's some of the more controversial stuff about it. And I don't mean, um, you know, racial slurs being thrown around here and there or stuff like that. But when I looked at some of the reviews from the time, a lot of them said things like, 
you know, this movie's funny and well-performed and whatever, but the, the social commentary doesn't really come off. And I don't know if it's just because we're looking at it 40 years later or they don't really make movies quite this way anymore or what it is, but I think it comes off really well. And I thought it yeah. was probably a more interesting aspect of it than the, than the movie itself. And with a little more work, I think they could have had a movie that was super serious about that stuff and also very funny because there's funny stuff even in that that midsection or, or main section or, or meat of the movie or whatever sure. you call it. And I don't know if that was Landis and the writer's intent was to make a movie that was, a, you know, making a statement or, or trying to have more of a point or some sort of impact beyond just being funny or if, that you know, all that stuff's just in there as another conduit for laughs and whatnot. But um, intended or not, I think it, I, I thought it worked really well as a, as a kind of satire or, or holding a mirror up to yeah. society and, and all that kind of stuff, so. You know, twice twice while watching this movie today, and I've never seen the movie, but I know you have, and I know you're a fan, but, like, you know the movie Surviving the Game, obviously? Oh, yeah. Uh, like, there's kind of the... <laughs> it's almost kind of this these rich people playing on people's emotions for sport in that movie, and, and when that movie's obviously right. life or death, but, like, still, it's yeah. just poor people being abused for rich people's pleasure and twice so wait you've also never seen uh surviving the game i've never seen surviving the game no i've still (laughs) never seen surviving the game but that one's about 11 years away in uh in podcast yeah 94 or something (laughs) yeah 94 yeah well which is crazy because um even that means it's been what 29 years since that movie came out god yeah Insane. We could do a special 30th anniversary next year for it. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> but anyway, we'll yeah, that's Cobra the episode. Yeah, there you go. Cobra and surviving the game. By then Random you'll have seen uh, 20 more movies that I was, I'll be shocked that you had never watched up until just now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, but you um, see the point I'm getting at is like, there's kind of this parallel, like it could have, it's, yeah. it's kind of like that story. It, only obviously right. played for more laughs. Well, that but... movie, it's a hundred percent intentional, uh, you know, obviously. And, and in both of these movies, I, I'm sure it's intentional to whatever degree, but it's kind of like, it's, it's sort of window dressing for this one still being a, a comedy and, and that one still being a action thriller. And, sure. And the, the commentary is kind of, uh, you know, background or, or comes second. Yeah. Whereas I see what you're saying. In a different movie, that would have been the, the big intent or takeaway or the thing they wanted people to, you know, sort of latch on to. Right. Not, if it came out now, it definitely would. Right. And I don't know if that's better or worse. I, I like that they just kind of made this movie and you can watch it and be like, okay, here's the, the thing I want to take away from it without really pounding it over that. Although the movie's not subtle. I mean, it's clearly about that. Almost every, every other scene has somebody saying something that mm-hmm. you're, you're supposed to sort of think about and go, oh man, is this, really how it is or or whatever it's not like they're hiding it but um they don't it's not just in your face and and constantly trying to find ways to make you feel you know like shit or or whatever so somebody could totally watch this movie and not have any idea what's going on in the outside world or the broader scheme of things and and still Mm -hmm. just find it enjoyable as a as a comedy and and those sometimes are the ones that work best and you know the, the people just figure it out on their own you don't have to hammer them with it so i i appreciate that about it and, and i like that how did you feel about the 
the performances. I mean, this is at this point we're in Murphy's probably second big hit after uh, 48 yeah, hours well, being the breakout of sorts. Yeah, and he was on wise. top of the world after Saturday Night Live right. and as a stand-up and everything. He was already uh, just kind of primed to explode, and then he had 48 oh, sure. hours and now this, and it obviously just gets better and better at least until about 19. 19- 89 or whatever and, and so yeah I, I think everybody in here is good um I, well i'll, I'll kind of get into it as we go along but the one thing i kind of noted was the opening credits they they show the morning routine sort of juxtaposition between the the haves and the have-nots if you will uh you know there's there's these scenes of people going into all these buildings that are dilapidated and there's other guys walking into their country clubs and yeah uh, there's people going to a nice breakfast or having breakfast brought to them and there's other people just sitting on a street by a trash can fire and um it takes place in philadelphia you know there, there's obviously a huge uh, gap there like any any major city and i thought that kind of set the tone pretty well and then you got dan Aykroyd, who's this sort of pampered stock trader uh you know he's, he's constantly talking about pork bellies it's like pork bellies i have a i have a feeling something very exciting is going to happen with pork bellies this morning and his butler brings him breakfast in bed and he shaves him and picks out his clothes and he walks by a hundred people all saying good morning mr winthrop uh-huh. you know every time he's walking around <laughs> he's a picture um, of his girlfriend at every like he's got one in the bathroom while he's getting shaved and he's got one at his desk he's got one in his bedroom <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I then they introduced the the Dukes, which uh, are Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici as, as Randolph and Mortimer Duke. Um, so they're these wealthy, greedy owners of Duke and Duke. Um, and uh, Ackroyd works for them as a trader. And uh, same thing, you know, they walk out of their their. I don't, I don't know how many millions dollar mansion right. castle in somewhere out in uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and same thing. Morning, Mr. Duke, you know, a thousand times over. Um, and they get into a argument about whether uh, Winthrop or, or Dan Aykroyd's success is because, uh, as Randolph says, you know, he's, quote, the product of a good environment, uh, you know, advantages like Harvard and, and such. And then it's, it's a learned behavior, essentially. And then Mortimer argues that that's all nonsense and it's all about breeding. It's like, racehorses it's in the blood so he, he's always going to come out on top no matter what um and then we meet eddie murphy who again to juxtapose these two lifestyles he's a, a small-time con artist he's rolling down the street trying to pretend he's a crippled vet he's named uh valentine valentine, valentine yeah billy ray yeah. yep yeah, Billy Ray Valentine, who bumps into Aykroyd one day, accidentally knocks him over. Uh, he tries to hand Aykroyd back his briefcase, which Aykroyd assumes was some sort of intentional assault and attempted robbery. The cops capture Murphy. Aykroyd says he wants to press charges. The Duke brothers witness the fiasco, and uh, Randolph says there's nothing wrong with Murphy, just the product of a bad environment and circumstances. And Mortimer says, of course there's something wrong with him. He's a Negro in the way they, like, that's the first, uh-huh. the first, uh, sort of uh, clue that you know this movie is going to kind of play with the the race and and class systems and and stuff like that Uh, but he says he's probably been stealing since he could crawl um and and, you know this seems a little cringy nowadays but i i like the way the movie doesn't really pull any punches and and exploring or, or exposing these relations and uh you know there are rich men who who think this way and live in fear of other races and always Absolutely. think the worst of them and their intentions and yep. you know hell it's not just that you know there are but I'd argue a good majority of rich white people uh, you know forget white rich people just just 
certain yeah. people just feel this way and uh yep. and i'm all for movies not being exploited with shitty racist dialogue and cheap laughs for shock value but i do miss this area era where movies like this um especially just ostensibly silly comedies had real things to say about race and the racial divide and they weren't afraid to put those attitudes and language up on screen to to make their point i, I don't think nowadays i mean this movie drops the n-word and and the f-bombs and i don't mean fuck you know like right it, <laughs> And that's just the kind of thing that people would blink at nowadays. And I'm not suggesting we, we shouldn't mature out of that, but uh, you know, you, you lose something in the, in the bite that these comedies or these satires have and the point they're trying to make when you don't do that. Yeah. It's one of those things like you can appreciate, you know, they're never going to do shit like that. Not in our lifetime again in a movie, but you can appreciate what these movies were doing and they weren't, you know, they weren't holding back, like you said, they weren't pulling punches, but it's just something they can't, they can't go back to. Right. Be, well, I mean, I'm be, not for it being exploitive or done for a dumb, you know, cheap right. reason, you know, but mm-hmm. if the, if that's, if that is your, that's what this movie is about, I think that sort of language and attitude and everything is sort of essential to, to make that point. Right. Um, Anyway, the the Dukes make a bet that, uh, as Randolph says, given the right surrounding and encouragement, I, I bet that man could run our company as well as you or any young upstart like Winthrop or whatever. Mortimer says, if Winthrop lost his job, home, fiance, friends, was disgraced, arrested, and thrown in jail, I'm sure he'd take the crime like a fish to water. Uh, so they set a plan in motion to destroy Ackroyd and elevate Murphy. And and again, just because these guys are rich and, and bored and you know shitty and whatever, they're going <laughs> to... Yeah ruin ruin two guys or well, at least one um but we'll get to the end where they they don't even have the, the courage to let murphy stay at his uh sort of elevated position um Ackroyd's a kind of a pompous shit and hard to root for in the beginning um but i guess that's that's sort of the point uh you know he acts like he's some big hero for fending off such a scary animal like murphy or whatever but, <laughs> right uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I appreciate the awareness of the Dukes that they clearly don't mind uh, destroying someone's life, even if it's a shithead like Ackroyd for the sake of a bet just to amuse themselves. I don't know how much of this would ever happen in real life if anybody would take the time to go through this or, or risk the <laughs> whatever, but <laughs> right. I, I'm sure there are just rich old white people out there who think uh, everybody is, is around for their own personal amusement. I mean, they're yep. just the kind of people we, we talk about when we talk about people who simply have more money than they need or, or you know, than they know what to do with. And uh, they, I I don't know, like it, it kind of made me mad because it, it makes me think about stuff that I I deal with on a, on a regular basis. You know, I've got certain family members and stuff like this who, who think that, um, they they have money and whatever and yet they do shit like this instead of just giving back or they bitch about their tax dollars going to you know these lazy criminals and Uh and, and to that end these are also people who if you ask them they would say you know i'm not racist i don't dislike black people i just dislike criminals etc they 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 like the black people that kind of travel in their circles or that are subservient to them or or even they don't really like them necessarily or they only like them while they're still beneath them in terms of status uh you know and again i they they assume the average black person is a criminal or to harm them and it's just this built-in systemic racism we talk about but people like these guys like to deny it's even a thing you know even even to the degree that they'd watch a movie like this 
with someone who's guilty of acting that way and they'll they'll say stuff like oh that's terrible and that people are treated this way or people think this way and, and they'll root for the black guy or root against the old white white villains uh you mm-hmm. know not not recognizing that you know that's them but in, in real life they behave just like these guys with zero self-awareness and uh, you know, they don't have no idea about the sort of hypocrisy of all that. But anyway, I'll get I off know. my soapbox. So no, there's right. uh, I know plenty of people like that, too. Seriously. Uh, so, so Murphy gets arrested. He's thrown in jail. Um, there's a young uh, Gina Carlos Esposito in, in jail with him. Did you notice yep. him in there from I did. Breaking Bad and NYPD Blue and a bunch of other stuff? He's kind of matured into one of our uh, better uh, sort of supporting role that guys. You know, he pops up in a lot of stuff. But uh, the Dukes bail Murphy out and give him a job. Murphy keeps uh, pickpocketing stuff from around the house. <laughs> Even then they give, take him in there and they're like, this is your place. You, you have a job here. This is your house and you can, this, all this stuff's yours. And he's just shoving ashtrays and yeah. <laughs> shit in his pockets. Cigar box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, so they, they frame Ackroyd as a thief. Uh, and then that's where Paul Gleason comes in. Paul Gleason, of course, shout out to him from Die Hard and the Breakfast Club. Uh, you know, he's their head of security uh, named Claris Beeks. Beeks, uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. He busts Ackroyd. Uh, they plant marked bills and drugs on him. Um, throughout the movie, both Murphy and Ackroyd come across uh, payouts to that name, uh, 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 Clarence Beeks. Uh, but I won't get ahead of the story there, but... Um, I always love me some Paul Gleason. I'll just I'll say. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> I'll say that much. He's when did we here, uh, so. when did we lose him? Four or five years ago. Um. Yeah, that's right. I I guess I didn't recall that he had died, but now that you say yeah. that, it sounds sounds right. Yeah. Just to go on a quick Paul Gleason thing, it's weird to me yeah, that please. like uh, Roger Ebert's one of one of his least favorite things about Die Hard was Paul Gleason, and I that yeah, always weird. He gave it out, two like, stars. Yeah, <laughs> he said that character was... single-handedly ruined the movie. Like he's so stupid yeah. and <laughs> such a such a poorly written, you know, caricature or whatever that by yeah. himself alone, he, he... yeah, definitely yeah, disagree I with that. <laughs> I wonder if he would have changed his. Uh, Roger Ebert was always pretty good about admitting, you know, however many years later that he dropped the ball on something. So I he'd revise he some of his, yeah, took back. Yeah, he wouldn't necessarily go back and rewrite another review, but you'd hear him talk about something a few years after it came out and say, yep. yeah, I wasn't in a very good headspace that day or, you know, whatever it was, or I wasn't thinking very okay. clearly or, or something. I wonder if he would think differently about uh, um, Die Hard. About Die Hard, yeah. But... <laughs> that was my Paul Gleason tangent, forgive me. <laughs> that was it, that he fucked up Die it. Hard yeah. for Roger Ebert? <laughs> yeah, that always weirded me out because I love the guy. Love Paul Gleason. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, jumping anywhere. I'm just running through all my notes here. So, uh, yeah. Murphy's spending money, partying it up. Uh, he he's, brings an entire bar full of girls back to his, his new mansion or penthouse or whatever he's got. Uh, one interesting wrinkle here is that even after just a day or whatever, uh, he's already worried about people trashing his place and you know, <laughs> yeah. respect his rugs. And, you know, and he's worried they're taking advantage of him for his money. So, I, I, I get in like what the movie's doing here. You know, it's kind of presenting Murphy as both someone who's inherently quote, you know, good and respectful. And it speaks to his character that he's not just some greedy, desperate asshole. Um, And it goes to the Duke's thesis that behavior is either innate or learned, but I I don't know. Do you think 
I, I was watching this thinking like, oh, so they 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 took this this poor black guy who they assume is no better than an animal or whatever, and and they're gonna like see what happens with him, and you know he proves to actually be a pretty stand up guy, but I don't know that you could just take any old bum off the street, give him a bunch of money and, and put him in this situation and expect it to work out. This right. way. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think that was, uh... and it's going to be a complete shit show and yeah, they're going to steal that everything. Go left. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, burn the place down or whatever. Yeah. So their, their idea that we're going to try this experiment is a little like, like, yes, I, I agree. You, you take somebody in, you nurture them, you whatever, educate them. They, yeah. they may be able to do well, but just any old random person off the street is and you, you give them all this money and freedom. I don't think it's going to probably pan out this way. Yeah. I think I'd want to bet more than a dollar on that one. <laughs> The, ri- oh, man, the you risks. Ruined the, you ruined the surprise. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> or the reveal or whatever. Oh. It's all right. Uh, I thought that was... Oh, yeah. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, no, they don't even the say that until then. They're like, how much should... They're like... Uh, In the bathroom, right? Go? Yeah. Yeah, they're like, should we bet the usual amount? And you're, you think it's going to be like, you know, $10 million or something crazy. And then they're like, pay up. And he's like, okay, I owe you $1. And yeah, yeah. it's just because they're doing this just for their own fucking... Yeah. Such bullshit. But uh, so yeah, I I do I do wonder if they just had any old degenerate asshole if it would uh, <laughs> probably play play out a little differently. Um, right. Murphy's clearly a smart, charismatic guy uh, despite his circumstances. But had they picked almost anyone else, um, including half the people they show in jail with Ackroyd, you know, or, or or half the people you and I probably know, people who are in better <laughs> circumstances than Murphy, frankly, yes. uh, would not. <laughs> Would not be so hot. Right. But I don't know. Even Ackroyd comes out after one night in a cell talking about how uh, the legal and prison system is fucked and all this <laughs> shit. And this this movie is kind of on fast forward, like trying to make its points, you know. But again, I do appreciate it tackling these issues and putting them out there for people to consider in, in a mainstream big star vehicle. At one point, Ackroyd shouts, uh, what am I going to live on? What's going to happen to me? And and he gets tossed out onto the street by these bankers who think he's now beneath them, beneath them uh, because he's you know accused of selling drugs and theft and doesn't have any money, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's it's how they they sort of eat their own. And when they're no longer seen as one of them or, or they fall on hard times, they treat them in the way they treat everybody else and just step all over them again. And yep. I, I think again that's fairly profound stuff for a a major studio summer comedy. You know, right. I think there's a, yeah, it's a pretty smartly written early story wise, a good story. Yeah. And, and they put all these little moments in there. Like I said, they're kind of fast forwarding through the, you know, they're, they're, it would take, I'll get to it in a second, but you know, but he, uh, Dan Aykroyd meets Jamie Lee Curtis and, and they obviously are going to hit it off and everything, but I would think that would take days or weeks or, or months or whatever it is for that to, to happen. And within, you know, 24 hours, she's totally on board with whatever she has to do to help him out and right. things like that. And, and you know, that's going to happen, you know, it's coming, but this movie is just, and, and the movie is two hours or so, maybe yep. a little, yeah, a little under, yeah, somewhere right under. under. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I'm, so it's not yeah. exactly a short film, but they do have to like cram all this stuff in. So I guess I kind of appreciate them sort of running through the, like, we know this is going to happen. We know this is what they're ultimately going to do or say or, or whatever. Right. So let's just like hit the highlights. Um, but, but yeah, it does. It 
does ring a little hollow and you know these <laughs> these things are just just happening in the course of i mean this this is all it happens between christmas and new year's pretty much yeah is that the somewhere yeah days i think they mentioned christmas things and... yeah yeah the days before christmas and then through new year yeah um i like the scene where the dukes explain to murphy what commodities brokers do and what commodities are and and murphy gets it because it's similar to being a bookie uh, and of course, he proves to be a natural uh, the first time the Dukes let him weigh in on pork bellies. <laughs> and then you, you juxtapose that with Ackroyd going to a pawn shop and dealing with people in the city and lower incomes and stuff he's never seen before. And, you know, it's all all very good. And yeah, so Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, she's a hooker. Gleason puts up to making uh, Ackroyd's fiance think is someone uh, who buys drugs from Ackroyd. And of course, she's a smart, business-oriented prostitute. Again, the, the movie is kind of trading in these cliches. Of, yeah, you know, she's the hooker with the heart of gold. And... Yeah, well, not even. I mean, she's she's got no, kind of a not. tough streak, and she's you know yeah. trying to like get her life together and stuff like that. So, but but either way, yeah, you know you know they're gonna gonna hit it off. Um, but uh, she's she's basically a device. So Ackroyd has a way to get back on his feet or have help and, and an ally. Uh, you know, what, what would he do if he didn't meet a hooker with a heart of gold like right. so many do in these movies? It's not a knock. It's just an observation. But like I said, it, at least they do make her smart and business savvy and all that. So that's a that's a decent wrinkle. But it's lucky that Ackroyd ended up with her. I mean, because <laughs> like, otherwise, I don't know where this movie would have gone. He, right. he wouldn't have he wouldn't have been able to do half the stuff he does if not not for her. Um and it's inevitable that she'll fall for him, or, or at least learn to like him. Uh, but right. it happens it happens pretty quickly. And again, the movie's kind of just burning through the motions. But um, I guess that's preferable to just slowly dealing out all these predictable elements. But what do you think of Curtis? I think she's she's really good in this. Yeah, um, I agree. Not normally. Well, there's movies I like her in, and movies I don't like her in. Um, Okay. I'm one of my least favorite movies ever is True Lies, and uh, she's one of the reasons for that. But also, I love Halloween. I love uh, Blue Steel. I thought it was an underrated movie, which I think we've discussed before. But um, yeah, yeah. So for the most part, she's good. And in this movie, I think she's getting out of the uh, the Halloween thing, and you can definitely tell she's like a you know a woman now taking yeah. on roles like this. One uh, review I came across called her curvaceous and vivacious, and I, I think that kind of so you know that that maybe sounds a little shitty because because this movie is about you know her number one she's a hooker and number two she's got a couple nude scenes and and you know so like yeah. I, I think it, a lot of people are just gonna be like oh she's hot or whatever or we never never realize how hot Jamie Lee Curtis was I I yeah. don't know what the discourse was around her at at the time the movie came out but um but I. I think that's a, a fair thing. I mean, like, yes, the movie's obviously trading on her her sexuality and her being attractive and, and everything, and, and she certainly is. But um, that's the curvaceous part. But she, yeah, vivacious. She's she's good in this. She's she's funny. She's yeah. game. She's um, uh, I, I guess I don't know how to describe it other than yeah, vivacious. She's a she's a good screen good presence. presence. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. 
And uh, you know that said, there's there's a lot of a lot of boobs in here, and not just her. So if that's your thing, it's a it's a bonus. Uh, but <laughs> but she's she's good regardless. And the the role really rose her to prominence, and and she was she was most associated with horror movies, like you were kind of saying prior to this. And I read the studio didn't want her in the role because of that. Oh really? Um, yeah, like she wasn't a real actress because she cut her teeth in horror or something. Oh. But this movie proves him wrong, and wrong. it essentially yeah. made her career. So. Um, it's also a big rebound for Ackroyd, apparently. He was coming off a couple misses. So, But yeah, like you said, I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of True Lies either. A lot of people really love that movie. I've never yeah. liked it too much. I, don't, I, I wouldn't say she's the reason. I mean, she's, she's, she's one of the reasons. attractive in that movie. Yeah, yeah okay, like, well. <laughs> there, was some, there was some forced stuff in that with her and, and Schwarzenegger that A, went on for about 45 minutes too long, and B, just yeah. did not look... Uh, titillating it was not titillating to me it was just more good. my biggest issue with that movie and it's probably the part you're talking about too is that it sets up this plot it stops dead for like you said probably 45 minutes to an hour yep. to deal with this it turns into like a fucking sitcom yeah of well, here's the, bill paxton he's hilarious in it bill but... paxton i well i love bill paxton but yeah he's that's the, all that everything in that section is yeah yeah, Tom Arnold. Like, just, like, yeah, yeah. Yep. You just threw it all. And I'm not a I'm not a snob about you know comedy in my action or, or right. whatever. Like the there's a way to do all that stuff, but I don't know. They should have peppered that throughout more and yeah or, or something because they could have cut just, forty minutes to an hour out of that movie. It, it tanks right in the middle. Yeah, and, and then you get to the the big finale and stuff, and it's just as is you're exhausted, win <laughs> and yeah, uh, silly and over the top as you'd expect. And right, yeah, I don't know. I, I've never been a big fan of that movie either, but some people really love it. So yeah, I don't know. I guess if you're just into it for you know James Cameron and Schwarzenegger and some of the sure. action and stuff, it, I suppose it, it's okay. But yeah, I can't imagine Who's just the... sitting around watching that two plus hour. Is <laughs> <laughs> Tia Carrera in that? Oh yeah, I think she's in that too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, so yeah, uh, that um, that gave me a negative look on her for a while, but that's not. Uh, yeah. I remember her well, way more better than that. She didn't have too much after that, though. Not really. Um, yeah, that was big, and then I don't know. She kind of started going into these kind of like mom roles and Freaky Friday. I think was a yeah. big hit, and she the occasional like... Laurie Strode appearance again you yeah know, like christmas with the crank too oh yeah yeah <laughs> stuff like that yeah uh yeah true lies really didn't uh catapult her into another career as the uh sort of aging action hero yeah. or or uh, sex pot or whatever it was that movie could have made her yeah um, which she doesn't have to be i'm not i'm not even saying that she can do whatever the hell she wants but it just seems like there wasn't I, I thought that was going to kind of be her second coming because she got such great notices for that, and it just didn't really do do a whole lot. Did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally agree. But then, to the surprise of everybody, she's got everything everywhere all at once. Comes out last year, and she wins an Oscar. So she wins an Oscar. Maybe now will be the second coming of of Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. In another instance of uh, the kind of shit I was talking about, uh, Murphy quickly becomes the sort of studious employee who works during the Christmas party and is picking up on the Duke brothers company shenanigans. And again, you, you think any, well, forget homeless person, just any random person that you, you pluck from 
property would show the same passion and aptitude. I, I kind of <laughs> doubt it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's a genuine question because, you know, again, the movie rushes through it and, and makes Murphy that guy because it's necessary for the plot. But even though I'm, I'm kind of crying foul about it, I do like that this movie seems to be saying intentionally or not that some people deserve a chance because they have an aptitude for certain things and it doesn't matter if uh, they went to some fancy college or earned a degree for it you know good is good smart smart talented is talented and no matter where you grew up or, or the, the, the spectrum of opportunities you had or the hardships or mistakes you made uh, it's it's still they're still worth in a lot of people and maybe more so in some without education or connections and yeah and just like have no chance just yeah yeah give somebody a fucking chance man That's, yep murphy clearly could have been a a day trader or or at least work in some capacity in this uh this firm and yeah instead he's rolling around on the street trying to pretend he's crippled and, and shit like that <laughs> and a so, vietnam vet yep yeah and again forget forget the movie i'm just using that as an example of people who are out there who sure you know are are probably very good at something that they just can't get a job at because they don't have the degree that someone else has or the experience or whatever else. So I like that. I like that stuff about this movie. Um, I also understand Aykroyd's quick slide into depression and exasperation and, and obviously not to this level, but you know, I've been in situations where you just can't convince someone or, or many people of, of something, no matter what you do or say, and you're looking at the ramifications of all that and, and you just don't know what else to do. But I think him pulling a gun at the Christmas party and getting so desperate so quickly is, is another way this movie rings false or a little too screwball. And, and obviously from the setup, it doesn't make much sense that Ackroyd couldn't explain his way out of this, but it does lead to a good scene where he and Murphy essentially flip world views where Murphy says, uh, Ackroyd should be locked up and, and, People like that, quote, you know, people like that, in quotes, mm -hmm. are, are a menace and that that the Duke Dukes are actually saying things like, well, he's he's desperate. He has no money. And then Murphy says, oh, but he has money to buy drugs, which is such a thing that people would say uh -huh. about, you know, these yes. quote unquote criminals in our society. And then the very next line, he says, take it from me. I know. So he's completely oblivious and forgotten, you know, who he was and now thinks he's better than all that. And that's just such a perfect distillation of how many changes uh you know can can come about somebody when they when they get money and, and how it how it changes them and uh, their ability to remember and empathize and um that's maybe my favorite scene in the movie uh, at least in terms of topicality and it's it's a quick two minute scene and right. in uh in murphy's office but it kind of encapsulates everything right there and like i said i was way more into this part of the movie than i was into the last half hour where it has to become a screwball comedy <laughs> screwball, or, yeah. or whatever but yeah so it's, i don't uh, know how you felt about all that but. oh yeah i <laughs> i agree that's what that's what kept me in this movie like like you said at the beginning it's not it's not the comedy that you know that really draws your attention to it it's more the story or what you're and how it's playing out um yeah you do not 100%. see that in you do not see that in many John Landis movies until the next one we talk about in a couple of weeks, which will be Twilight Zone. <laughs> and I don't know if you don't know how that goes right. for John Landis. Well, we <laughs> we got a story for you there. Landis is such a well. We'll, well let's get to him when we're done with the, yeah. the movie because he's he has a very interesting filmography and uh, 
I mean, he fucking directed Thriller, for God's sakes. Yeah. <laughs> and Oscar, which... <laughs> if he only directed Thriller and Oscar... <laughs> it's still directed... be singing his praises. <laughs> yeah, well... I'll, uh, I'll share my fuller views on him at the end. I know you're a big fan of Animal House. But... Yep. Very Which, much so. Not to say I'm not, but... Right. Yeah. Uh, then you find out the Dukes were only betting a dollar on destroying at least Aykroyd's life and, and using Murphy as a pawn, and it wasn't for for money or just for thrills. We were saying earlier, it's not like they made some $10 million bet or something. It's, you know, $1, and they were just doing it to amuse themselves. Um, I'm not saying it would be better if it was about the money, but they're they're both clearly just sociopaths. And then Murphy <laughs> overhears the Dukes discussing their plan, and contemplating, uh, you know, how they're going to get Ackroyd back and dump, you know, Murphy back in the ghetto. And, and Mortimer says he doesn't want Ackroyd because he doesn't trust the violent thug like him, which they're totally oblivious to the fact that, like, they, they're they the ones who forced him into all that. <laughs> right. And then Randolph says, uh, what do you, what, you mean you want to keep Valentine as managing director? And then Mortimer says, hell no. Do you believe I'd have a, and then he yeah. does the N word and says it with a really hard fucking R mm-hmm. <laughs> managing our family business. And Randolph says, I wouldn't either. I mean, so they're both fucking scum. And based on this entire scheme and lives ruined, we already, we already knew that, but there's just some overly eccentric Richmond, oblivious, uh, unconcerned, you know, stuff that hurts people. But then there's actually just awful shitty racist, people like these guys and this movie is kind of crazy for going that hardcore with that stuff I, yeah I, at least i thought i was it's a little little surprised to hear some of that and and i know it was a different time whatever so maybe this is the kind of thing well i shouldn't say maybe i've seen enough movies from this time to know that they they threw around the n-word and the f-word and all this stuff a lot more casually but uh for some reason i don't know it it, it hits in this movie a little more and i think it's because it has established itself as this semi at least topical uh sort of social commentary type movie even yeah. if uh even if it's still sensibly just a screwball comedy but and i had no idea i was never i never really had interest in seeing it the whole way yeah. through yeah. like and uh, i only you know but i'm glad i did way way impressed with that i've always heard people like this movie and you know how good it is or how funny it is um i don't know if they like it because of this stuff or if they just think it's a really funny movie um, right it's both uh but i i would definitely say the comedy kind of came second for me it, it, it's funny but it's not rolling around on the floor dying laughing <laughs> right uh, rewatchable quote i mean there's there's stuff in it that is but um i think it's just a it's a good movie from from start to finish tracking how these uh guys have to go about dealing with these these shitty yeah <laughs> the, the circumstances the dukes put them in and then what that sort of says in terms of painting a broader picture of uh America the casting you're right i like the way that you're you know you find yourself quickly you know, you're enjoying the bond between Murphy and Aykroyd because they'd both have the same objective at this point. And like that works. And like Curtis, like you said before, like is just very up for doing anything in this movie. Like she's funny, which, you know, yeah, everyone, you know, Denholm Elliott, same thing. Like you just care about these characters. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, like I said, it's it's bookended with uh, silly stuff mm -hmm. uh, as a means of just setting the plot in motion and then resolving it. Uh, it kind of turns into a buddy comedy or whatever. But uh, but I think the meat of this movie is, is the haves versus the have-nots and the, and the racial politics. And to the extent that even when Aykroyd wakes up thinking it was all a dream, the first thing he says is, it was all because of some Negro. Not, <laughs> not only is that... Like... <laughs> Yeah, right when he wakes it's, up. It's just like it, as soon as he he thinks it's all over and and okay and he's back to who he wants to be, you know, it, it's like he forgets about whatever lessons he you know may have learned. Right. Uh, but it showcases his own his own racism, just tossing yeah. out that the guy is <laughs> is black, like it was due to someone beneath him. Like I was saying, and, I, and again, he's he's probably the kind of guy to be like, you know, I'm not racist or whatever. But like, or or even after that whole experience, we say he found out. Oh, it wasn't a dream. This guy got me my job back. Oh, great. But he he's still, you, you know, you can tell he's not, he doesn't, he hasn't learned a goddamn thing. Uh, he's going to be nice to Eddie Murphy, but he's not going to be nice to the next like bum that grabs him off the street. Or Very true. And again, I, I'm not sure if that's an intentional indictment of how people think in, in a feather in this movie's cap, or if it's played for like kind of a cheap laugh because then, right. then they cut to a reaction shot of Murphy. Like what? You know? Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's kind of why that's probably in there. Um, but it's just, it's ugly to witness. And, and I'll give the movie the benefit of the doubt and say that it's it's part of its overall intent to right. you know, challenge the sort of... Um, Eddie Murphy, I guess we should talk about him. He's got some great deadpan F-bombs, which uh, we're kind of <laughs> accustomed to from him, especially now. Uh, but but they still land, and I'm, I'm guessing his performance here felt even more relevatory and exciting in 83 when he was still kind of an emerging star. Um, I don't know. I, I was too young to really remember him. On Saturday. I, I went back and I remember renting his like best of Saturday Night Live yeah. VHS from the, from the uh, video store. And, and obviously I thought all this stuff was funny, like buckwheat and Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. And stuff yeah. Like what was it? The, what was the hot tub one? Was that James Brown? James Brown? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I'll spare you my impersonation. but. <laughs> But yeah, um, he's he's obviously just a a fucking fireball of talent, absolutely and excitement and, and everything else. But uh, yeah, we we did forty eight hours on this podcast. I think we were both in agreement that for a first movie, he he feels like he was already a, yep. a star, just ready to go. Natural charisma, you know, just looks yeah. everything. He's he was so perfect for that time. Yeah. Uh, there. <laughs> uh, like I said, Eddie Murphy gets some good F-bombs, but Paul Gleason also gets a great one in where he's in the phone booth talking to the Dukes. And there's this lady <laughs> waiting to use it. Use the phone. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, hold on. And then he, he turns around to her and goes, fuck off. And on its face, that's not very funny. And I'm, I'm not Paul Gleason, so it doesn't sound funny. But <laughs> like, it's not some master line or anything, but it's so abrupt and rude. And Gleason just sells it so perfectly. It gets a big laugh. Yeah. <laughs> and and Amici and Bellamy, as as the Dukes, are, are fucking perfection, too. Like, everything they say, all of their racial shit, and when they drop an F-bomb or whatever is, yeah. is really funny. And uh, I don't know if that's a credit to Landis or just this cast is as good as it is. But, uh, yeah, they everybody lands really perfectly on, on a lot of the dialogue. And, you've yeah, seen, uh, you've seen coming to America, obviously. Yeah. Um, there's a, a scene, while, but I have, yeah, there's a scene towards the end where 
he's or Bellamy and Amici recreate their characters, right? Is that supposed to be them? Oh fuck! Okay, hold on, hold on to this. Okay, because I I knew I I was like. Well, I might as well say it now. Okay. At at the end of this movie, I was like, I swear to God, the last time I watched this, there these guys are like on the street begging or or like yeah. something. I thought that's how this movie ended. And I was like, what did I just like make that up in my head? Or and I was like, oh, I, I'd be a better screenwriter than the guy who did this. Like they should have put that in there if I. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that was coming to America, where those guys are. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, got and, it. And he says something like Mortimer, I, check it out. And I didn't. Un- yes, I knew... yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. I knew that was a a thing that I did not just imagine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm glad I could uh, bring that up then. Yeah. Um. Like I said, I was gonna say it towards towards the end when we got to the end of this. Like, uh, I swear to God, I remember there was a scene with those two guys. But uh, yeah, must have been coming to America. Yeah. Right, the, the homeless men that received the money from Prince Akeem are the Duke brothers from trading places. Yeah. Well, the other thing I was going to mention uh, was that um, Eddie Murphy towards the end of this movie, when they're, they're on the train and, and we're jumping ahead of stuff here, but he's dressed up in a kind of African garb playing mm-hmm. like an African, not a prince, but he's playing a, like they say an exchange student or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's obviously a, a precursor to the, the whole coming to America. Right. Because that's the same accent and same director. Yeah. That. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, who knows? You think they came up with the whole coming to America thing while making this one? Um, maybe. Know. Maybe he had it in his back pocket. I mean, it was about five years later, but. All right. But I mean, it could have been like, hey, you know, like, I don't I don't know how. This is the weird thing about doing this now. Like, I don't know how well received the um, the the African character that that Murphy was doing was yeah. at the end of this movie, but maybe everybody came away like, "Oh, that shit at the end where he, you know, was dressed up and it, whatever." Maybe they were like, "That's that's hilarious," and that was the big takeaway. And they were like, "Oh, we should do a whole movie like that." And we'll <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I'm sure it's easily Googleable, but I, I, I've never thought about it until we were just talking about it right now. So I'm I can tell you that the good. writer of this movie did not write um, "Coming to America." Right. Again, he, he did Twins. He did that. Kindergarten Cop. Um, so he jumped on the Schwarzenegger bandwagon yeah. instead of the Murphy bandwagon. <laughs> well, that's all right. Um, well, I'll... but I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like him and Landis are doing this, and they're like, yeah, you know, they get good notices for that that character or people thought that was really funny. I could see them cooking that up. Like, yeah, we should make a whole movie about a guy who comes to America from America and you can do your impression that brought the house down or whatever. I could totally see that being the way that movie came about. That's brilliant. I, yeah. And again, I'm, I'm sure you can easily Google it or or Wikipedia it or whatever, but I don't know. I would rather just uh, sit here and assume that I (laughs) figured it out. And if I'm wrong, I don't want to know either. So forget it. Okay. (laughs) I will uh, have my production team look it up while we're, while we're talking. Um, Cool. Are we, we should probably either stay on that train scene. Cause there's, (laughs) there's something. I'm not even there yet. Yeah, I know. So (laughs) that's what I was asking. I'll get away from it. Uh, well, I, I do. I, I'm just. I'm kind of in a, a place where I'm just sort of discussing the the fact that you know Murphy's good, Cleason's good. Um, I like the, the Donamici and, and Bellamy as the Dukes. I think they're really good. We already mentioned that we think Curtis is good. 
uh landis as always he's a, a terrific director um and like i i said the the supporting cast is solid too we talked about uh gina carlos Bazito and some of these cameos or, or young up-and-comers that pop up um denholm elliott who mm-hmm. plays coleman uh, winthrop's butler he is great uh al franken's in here jim belushi pops up uh you know belushi oh here here's the thing we need to talk about belushi and yet another ape suit that's three in a row on the big four now we haven't talked about octopus yet but there's one in octopussy uh so i watched <laughs> Wait, octopussy that first four so Oh, three okay. no it's three in oh. a row for me well what would be the fourth there's man with two brains there's octopusy and there's this one was there oh, yeah. a fourth i'm forgetting? well there was that there's that chimpanzee in project x that we watched last week oh that oh, was a joke God. about war games sorry got it got seriously it. folks that's a steep cut for people who listen to the big four row. <laughs> all three of them right but so summer of 83 was clearly the year of uh, dudes in ape suits. I can't yeah. wait to see what next week brings. Okay. <laughs> anyway, my point is everyone in here is aces. It's it's a great supporting cast. A lot of familiar faces that are fun to see pop up in these these little roles. We didn't even mention some of the, the people in uh, Murphy's, like when he's in prison and then in that bar and everything. There's a lot of a lot of guys who, that, that one guy who just keeps going, yeah! <laughs> the, uh, the bartender was pretty funny in there, too. I've seen that. I've yeah. seen a couple of those guys before. Oh yeah, they're they're definitely those guys. I, mm-hmm. I didn't look up didn't look up names or anything, but there, there's a ton of that. I mean, the, the movie is stocked with them, especially at the beginning. Like I said, the the beginning and end of this movie, the the sort of bookending stuff is 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 filled with that sort of thing, and that's where they sort of dump all these you know sort of players in. But then the middle or the meat of the movie is this more I don't say serious, but it's it's a more focused affair i guess yeah say and it's not as not as hindered to the whole screwball aesthetic of just shoving gags and people and lines and and everything in where you can so and i guess that's kind of cool it's a good way to make a movie you know um i'm not gonna bash the the opening parts or the the ending parts i think it's it's as good a way as any for john landis to try to present this especially if he's trying to Give us all a little something to think about, but also make sure that everybody goes home happy because they saw kind of a silly, funny, stupid movie that they probably promised in the trailer. So. <laughs> right. Ackroyd. I can take or leave. I don't know. I can take him and leave him in this, and I can take him and leave him in pretty much anything. I don't know what your thoughts are on him. I think his his mojo or, or whatever fits the part well, uh, but he always just plays this sort of timid henpecked pushover type character um that's fine i get it he makes a good naive straight man or whatever but he's not really doing anything new or exciting here i don't know what your thoughts are on yeah never uh okay there's there's roles that i enjoyed him in but nothing i I was definitely never a big fan like i liked ghostbusters but it sure wasn't because of him or i like um you know tommy boy but it's not because of him there's yeah, there's things he does that that are funny, but I've never been like a big, big fan. Of yeah, there's, love there's, the there's nothing wrong with him, but he's right. got kind of one speed, right? Yes, and he's um, either talking at this very the monotone voice yeah. with the and then or yeah. it's full ten, like he's just he's he's uh, yeah nothing against him. Obviously, he's been in some like classic stuff, and he yep. was very good on Saturday Night Live and everything, but. Um, yeah, he really only just has one speed. And a movie I really love is Gross Point Blank. He's in that sort yeah. of playing. 
I would say against type because he's playing a, a hitman and whatnot, yeah. but he's really not not against type. He's just a. <laughs> I hated him in that movie. A, not like not him as an actor, but I hated his character. Like I wanted him yeah. to die so badly. It was right. a good no, role. Yeah. 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 He's he's fine. I, I just I wish he had a little more. Uh, range is the wrong word, but it just would have been nice to see him kind of branch out a little more. I guess as as his career went, but. So be it. I know, he, he's fine in here, but just he, uh, uh, everybody else is like kind of kind of doing something that stands out, and he's stuck kind of playing the straight man, which I guess is like I said, his thing. So right, someone was gonna have to do it, but yeah. So uh, Murphy goes after Gleason to stop the Duke's plot to get rich off orange crops or whatever. <laughs> the uh, the the stock stuff was completely lost on me in this movie. Um, yes, I, I like how they show show this heavily guarded briefcase with documents uh you know heading into a courthouse on the news as if that's a thing that ever <laughs> happens like i don't know if it is maybe maybe early maybe like oh the New guy York with the, was... the the frozen yeah. orange juice futures has just showed up at the courthouse yeah they're like, like a <laughs> handcuff briefcase yeah. to his i don't think that happens listen that was a uh i'm glad you were you were that way too because that was a part of the plot i was hoping i would not have to explain either <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, they, they end up on a train on New Year's Eve with Murphy in disguise as uh, this, the, as I mentioned, the caricature of kind of an African exchange student, which is, uh, again, a precursor to the coming to America character. Uh, Ackroyd is in blackface, which is another <laughs> controversial moment in terms of how some people feel this movie is aged. Um, I'd be willing to chalk it up to a more topical commentary or whatever, kind of like I've been trying to cut this movie slack on. But the moment is so fleeting it doesn't even really feel necessary and, and like it was just thrown in there for the cheap laughs or, or visual gag of seeing Dan Aykroyd in black like that. It, yeah. He does nothing by by doing that. Right. He uh, could have just stayed he, out. He walks of the room. in two seconds later. Yeah. Gleason yeah. knows who he is. And, and yeah. that's, that's the end of that. <laughs> he didn't know anybody so, else. So the other three could have just right. ripped, done the done the thievery. Gleason ends up in Belushi's ape costume next to a real ape and uh, is ostensibly raped by the actual gorilla, which I guess was another uh, potentially controversial <laughs> moment in this movie, which, yeah, it's funny how some things have aged because that's the kind of thing that would not even like really register now. I mean, we've right. seen how many dumb movies with like Adam Sandler or, Chris mm-hmm. or somebody where like the implication is that they get like a dog fucked them or a sure. lion or whatever yeah. dumb shit. Mm-hmm. So it, it's weird that that, was one of the things I, I noted or, or saw that was yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the blackface. It's the it's the gorilla costume sex. <laughs> the Dukes end up in a deep throat scenario in a parking garage paying off who they assume is, is Gleason for what they assume is the correct trading info about this uh, orange uh, orange drink. Uh Obviously, Ackroyd and Murphy screw them. Uh, they invest the butler and Curtis's savings. They let the Dukes drive the price of frozen orange, orange OJ up. Uh, then they queer the deal. And I've never been able to make heads or tails of what the fuck is going on with all these people on Wall Street shouting and throwing papers around and writing things on notepads. And it's always portrayed as this chaos. And maybe yeah. it's like that. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not, I'm not a finance guy. Yeah. <laughs> But if it's if it's like that every single fucking day for every different item traded, every second of your day I, is that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's at the end of the day, right? Before it oh. closes, or oh, I, yeah. I I don't know yeah, how it that's works. Right. But 
but but they walk in there like everything's traded here gold silver uh you know plutonium like wh- whatever it is and they're like you know frozen orange juice and, and shit and it's like if, if everybody's going ape shit over every single little commodity that is traded <laughs> that just seems like i don't know maybe that's what it's like like the, that the scene before that happens is a bunch of guys in in the bathroom all getting like psyched up to go go do <laughs> right. this you know they're they're drinking and smoking and yeah just whatever they're doing and uh, yeah, again, I have, I have no idea. Maybe that's what it's like on the New York Stock Exchange, but that's pretty insane. Um, so the the uh, uh, Dukes lose $394 million. They can't pay it. And then this is where Amici gets a good good F-bomb in. Uh, the, <laughs> his brother has a heart attack. And they say, we, it, I think something's wrong with your brother. And he goes, fuck him. And him. he keeps yelling about <laughs> And again, I'm not doing it justice. It's way funnier in context and way funnier to see Amici do it. But uh, they, they do that pretty well. So um, ends with Murphy, Ackroyd, Curtis, and Coleman on a beach. Uh, I, I thought I remembered the final scene with the Dukes on the street in raggedy clothes, but I guess not. Although we figured that one out. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I do want to mention is, uh, like we said, it's it's filmed entirely in Philly and New York. And then there's that scene where they pull up to the Twin Towers, and that shit still gets me, man. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I Same. think we're kind of coming to a point now where people don't really remember if you're too young or care if you're just one of these people who's like, oh, man, we're done talking about 9-11. But, God, every time those pop up in a in a movie, it, it still stands out. And in this one particularly, because there's so many – they're, like, looking up at it, and they're so mm-hmm. – Tower. I've been to the new space with the new one, and it's the same thing. To just you look up, this thing is so fucking huge, and you just imagine like this thing coming down on you. Right. Uh, you know, people running from it. Like it, it's you can't even fathom how that that would happen. And then in this movie, it does that. It does that like pan from below all the way up. Yeah. Even Murphy walks out of like the, the car. He's looking up at him like they're insane. And then there's the scenes where they're like walking by the the um like the lobby area of it and and you can yeah, see the that panels sort of, and yeah the iconic yeah. panels and, mm-hmm. and the design and everything and fuck man that stuff still just really oh absolutely I'm not, a, I'm not a new yorker i'm not not anything i wasn't right. any more affected by it than anybody else just watching tv but um yeah i don't know i still get a get a weird weird feeling when i see those towers and movies what about every time you're watching an episode of friends or on uh, I don't do that, Peter. So it's not I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, that's that's the that's the end of my notes. So uh, yeah, uh, what else what else should we talk about with this um, box office? I guess sure. We're we going to talk about Landis a little bit. Well, you know what? We're going to be doing uh, Twilight Zone, so I think that'd be a better okay. point to cover them. Talk about Landis, okay. Yeah. Well, this movie's budget was fifteen million dollars, which I, it seems kind of high for nineteen eighty-three. That works out to about forty-five in today's dollars, which is a that's not Marvel money, but on a on a comedy, you know, that's. Uh, but made one hundred and twenty twenty point six million dollars uh, in nineteen eighty-three dollars. So if we do our normal triple it thing, that's a almost four hundred million dollar movie in today's dollars, which would obviously be a huge hit. That's hangover level uh success so, yeah huge that'd be a huge yeah big up. time did you say it's opening weekend gross uh I or did just not. what it get to the box okay. office after we do uh octopussy act uh, octopussy all right <laughs> uh i like i mentioned this is kind of a, a interesting little history here so just this straight off wikipedia but um 
In the early 1980s, writer Timothy Harris often played tennis against two wealthy but frugal brothers who regularly engaged in competitive rivalry and betting. Following one session, Harris returned home exasperated with the pair's conflict and concluded that they were awful people. The situation gave him the idea of two brothers betting over nature versus nurture in terms of human ability. Harris shared the idea with his writing partner, Herschel Weingrod, who liked the concept. Harris also drew inspiration for the story from his own living situation. He lived in a rundown area near Fairfax Avenue in Los Angeles. Described the area as grim in terms of crime-ridden, where everyone either had a gun pointed at them or had been raped. They mm. researched the commodities, commodities market for the script. They learned uh, financial market incidents, including Russian attempts to corner the wheat market. Um, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so that's interesting. Um, then when we get to casting, Trading Places was developed with the intent to cast comedy duo Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder as Billy Ray Valentine and Louis the third. The pair were in high demand following the success of their comedy Stir Crazy in 1980. When Pryor was severely injured after setting fire to himself while freebasing cocaine, the decision was made to cast someone else. <laughs> Wikipedia's words, not, not mine. It seems a little insensitive, but that's... <laughs> uh, Paramount Pictures suggested Eddie Murphy. The studio was initially unhappy with Murphy's performance in his first film, uh, the as-then as unreleased action comedy 48 Hours a film also conceived as a prior project. However, that film was well-received by preview test audiences, leading the studio to reverse its opinion. Landis was unaware of Murphy, who had been gaining fame as a performer on Saturday Night Live. After watching Murphy's audition tape, Landis was impressed enough to travel to New York to meet with him. Murphy said that he was paid $350,000 for the role. It was reported that the figure was as high as $1 million. So, I don't know. Landis wanted Aykroyd to serve as Murphy's co-star. He worked with him previously on the Blues Brothers. The experience had been positive. Um, they felt Aykroyd working alone would be akin to Bud Abbott, half of Abbott and Costello <laughs> working without Lou Costello since uh, John Belushi was no longer around. Uh, and Aykroyd's recent films had uh, fared poorly at the box office. Aykroyd agreed to take a pay cut for the role. The studio also objected to the casting of Jamie Lee Curtis. At the time, she was primarily seen as a scream queen in uh, low-quality B-movies. Uh, Landis had worked previously with Curtis on the horror documentary Coming Soon, for which she had served as the host. She wanted to move away from horror films. Um, she had turned down the role in the horror film Psycho 2, which we did not review last week, but came out last week. Uh, because of this, her mother, Janet Lee had famously starred in Psycho. Curtis had performed recently in the slasher film Halloween 2 as a favor to John Carpenter. Uh, she was paid $1 million for that role, but received only $70,000 for trading places. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So a lot of these people did this movie just to, to try to reignite their career or get their career going either yeah. again or, or just going in the case of, of Murphy. Um. And then it goes into, you know, Landis hiring, uh, uh, you know, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy and, and everything else. So it, it's an interesting, interesting thing. But yeah, I thought those, uh, the, the Wikipedia on this one is insane. Like it just, it just goes on forever. Some of these are real basic. It's like filming commenced on yada yada ended so-and-so yeah. and this movie made uh, 40 million and critics were okay with it, yeah. you know, but <laughs> So yeah, this movie is generally uh, well, well uh, uh, 
received. Uh, Trading Places received generally positive reviews from critics. Reviews compared it to socially conscious comedies of the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, and then, like I said, there was this this weird sort of they thought the movie was was funny, but topical stuff sort of fell flat, which I think is is a little weird. I would have thought it would have gone the other way, saying like, you know, there, there's funny moments, but what really makes this movie stand out is is the the commentary, and um, that's not not really the way it way it went. But I yeah I agree. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yep. All right. Okay. Our next movie is Octopussy. It is the 13th James Bond film. Stars Roger Moore. That's the sixth movie to star Moore and his penultimate performance as the titular as agent Bond. 007. Yep. License to Kill. Yep. So you said you've seen this a bunch of times. I'll kind of let you run with things. I've got a few notes about uh, some stuff, but uh, um, yeah. Let's let's go, man. What do you think of Octopussy? Um, <laughs> I had not seen it in probably thirty years or so. Um, in terms of Roger Moore James Bond movies, I think it's 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 not any better or worse. He was such a he was a, a funny Bond, but his movies are they're either really bad or decent. I would put this in the decent. Um, it's there's a lot of really dumb shit in it. Um, I don't think that's just because of Roger Moore. I think there was just some weird uh, 80s schlockiness going on and laziness. But other than that, I mean, it's it's probably 15 minutes too long. Um, still had fun with some of it. Still had fun with some of his dumb dialogue that he would say. Yeah. Is that it? That's it. Yeah, that's my. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, so like I said, I I've never seen it before, as far as I know, and um, I I don't think I've seen a lot of Roger Moore movies uh, or, or of his movies. Um, uh, the first thing I will note is it has a terrible theme song, uh, "All Time High" by Rita Coolidge. Uh, it's just a stock '80s sounding saccharine saxophone ballad. Um, I remember a ton of songs like this on the radio at the time. Um, the the one I thought this was, or I thought it was going to be, was "You're Every Woman in the World to Me." But then I looked it up, and that was Air Supply. <laughs> but th- this movie is the same uh, progression and, and and galloping into the chorus, not galloping, like slowly crawling into sure. the fucking chorus. <laughs> sure, I thought, <laughs> I that's what it was going to be. Um, so yeah, re- really bad theme song. I don't know if it's the worst. I'm not sure what people consider the worst, but that that one's terrible. Um, Moore is fine, but uh, he's hardly you know youthful or or dapper or even super fit. Like I was a little surprised by this. I I, I thought this was probably going to be his last one because he's looking a little yeah you know just long in the tooth or whatever. But um, which which is fine. None of the bonds I guess were real. Um, you got Craig now, who who isn't super young, I guess, but he he was always real fit and buff, right. and kind of jacked, and and that's not really how any of these guys were. They were more suave, and and I guess I also understand in a different time, uh, you know, Connery and Moore, especially, um, there that wasn't really the standard of a a male uh, sex symbol. It wasn't to be you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something right. like that. You know, you could be a kind of just normal looking guy but as long as you're dapper and debonair and dress yeah. nice and and all that so okay fine but that was my first sort of 
big takeaway when they had him doing a bunch of action sequences and stuff. I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if I, I buy more doing this. Although by the end, he he came around. Like he he's doing his thing the way he does it, and I guess it's convincing enough. Um, so uh, yeah, I can't think of another more that I saw. So uh, just basing it off this one, do I think he's a great James Bond? I mean, no, but is he fine or adequate, especially for the time? I I guess uh, it's it's yeah. hard for me to have anything to kind of compare it to. But, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I don't know what, what was, uh, well, I'm sure it's a Google away. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but Ooh, try um, me, try me. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my assumption was that I guess all the bonds before him were pretty middle-aged, uh, or, or at least middle-aged looking. I don't know what the stars actual ages were when they first started playing bond. Yeah. Um, Again, I'm sure it's a kind of an easy Google, but I, I, I don't know where, where Connery was or where Moore was. but Connery was probably Moore... in his mid, early to mid-30s, I would bet. Moore, I, okay. Moore might have been already in his late 40s. So in this movie, he... Well, he he died in 20... What was it? 13? Roger Moore? Yeah. He died in 2017. 2017 and he was like 90ish, right? Yep. Just a couple bunch okay. shy of 90. So if you do the math, he's in his 50s in this movie. Yep. Right. Uh yeah, so 2000 yeah, he's he's almost he's like 56 or something. Right. 54. And when did he start playing Bond in like uh, the his... early 70s, like 73 yeah. or something? 74 i believe yeah 73 or 74 so he was 43 when he started playing bond so his first bond i apologize uh live and let die 1973 so he would have been 46 then well so 10 years younger than this yeah that's okay so 46 73 yeah and then dalton had to be in his 40s brosnan had to be in his 40s yeah Craig, oh, for sure, probably yeah. two or close. Uh, so, close, yeah. yeah. So all these guys are a little bit on the older side, I guess. I, I guess middle age is maybe the wrong word, although if you only live till eighty, forty is middle age. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Craig um, was, yeah, Craig was thirty six, by the way, when he started. When he started playing Bun? Yeah, yeah, but that was like fucking twenty years ago now. It was so. yeah, two thousand six was his first. Right, uh, Casino so, Royale or whatever. Yeah, so seventeen years ago. Seventeen so years ago. He's... So he's fifty-five now. So he'd have been oh yeah, thirty-eight. Mm, that sound right? Fifty-five. Are you sure? Yep. Okay. Sure. Um. All right. I I don't know. I don't even know how to judge these fucking movies, man. They're they're such formula, and it's not really a criticism, but it's it's almost astonishing and and I guess admirable in a way that they all follow the same trajectory with like a big opening action sequence, some humor with Bond being a cad with some attractive female liaison or whatever, and you know there's the familiar scene with Money Penny in the office and shit, and then the the plot gets laid out by his higher ups and Bond's showing how smart he is. In this case, he knows all about Faberge eggs somehow. <laughs> uh, then, then there's him infiltrating the bad guys through stuff like an auction or a card game or whatever. This movie's got fucking both. Um, he meets people who will help him along the way. Uh, here there's the Indian snake charmer guy who plays 
you know, the Bond theme on his recorder, which I thought was right. kind of a funny touch. <laughs> Incidentally, this character is named uh, VJ, uh, and he's played by VJ uh, Armitage. Uh, this was his acting debut after gaining prominence as a tennis player. Oh. So I didn't okay. look up anything after the fact to see if his career continued on or not, but... Uh, the scene where Q lays out all his new gadgets and says, pay attention, 007. And then every girl he meets, you know, is charmed by him. He doesn't take anything too seriously. Always cracking jokes. And until we meet the main female character he's actually interested in, or we get towards the climax where the stakes and action actually mean something. It's amazing how many movies they've made and keep making doing all these, these same things over and over again. But yeah, it's a formula that just seems to work. And even the lousy entries at least deliver basic goods and fun so that this movie has the same you know two two villains there's never just one it seems like uh, they're both in cahoots somehow here it's a soviet general and and their plot is to fucking whatever like <laughs> fuck up the capitalist american pigs or bomb some shit and I don't know. I just think it's funny when Bond has a, a pen or something that's stashed with some chemical that can melt on your bars. Nitric acid, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't melt the pen it's in. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's all that that stuff. So, I I don't even know how to fucking rate it, man. Like, I guess if you're coming into it for, for all that, this movie has all that. It's, it's a little dated looking back on it yeah. now, but maybe in 83 it was considered top top draw <laughs> i don't know this was his sixth we said as, as yeah okay so at this point everybody knew what the more movie the more bond movies were going to be like there's absolutely a formula that they just followed to a t with spy who loved me well, it's not just the more movies i mean that, that's that's oh, bond like there's a yes yeah yeah there's but... a different tone to maybe like a craig bond movie or, or even the connery yeah, maybe... ones were a little more uh you know, he was he was just a yeah. different character than Moore was. Moore was a little little more goofy. Yeah, well, that's the the funny thing. I, I remember I was I was looking through some reviews of this movie, and uh, some of the ones that praised it were saying he's this is one that's better than some of the other Moore movies because he's having more fun, which. Like, Which I, I don't, I, I, don't yeah, know. I always felt like how fucking did. goofy the other ones were. Right. They, yeah, probably... <laughs> they acted like he was a stoic you know, weirdo or something. I, I, yeah. don't, I, I got nothing to compare it to. I don't know. Yeah. There's actually lines in this movie that I remembered from as a, from a kid, like when he tells the when he tells the tiger to sit. I'm like, oh my god, oh, yeah. I can't. Believe that. I hadn't thought about that moment in years, and blew your uh, mind. Yeah, it did. I don't I, like I said I don't think I've ever seen it so it didn't uh, I, I didn't recall any of it I was thinking maybe something would kind of come back to me about it but yeah. that never happened so um yeah the the general consensus on this I guess is kind of all over the map I I have that uh, handy Leonard Moulton book that mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember me carrying that thing around. He, I do. He yeah, I used to get copies of that room. after even after I lived with yeah, you. I was I'd done get with that. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, stop stop doing it in 2014, thanks to the internet. So RIP yeah. to the annual Leonard Moulton thing. But um, but I still have the most recent one, and I use it every once in a while just as a quick reference guide. And he gave it three and a half stars and said it's one of the one of Moore's best. And wow, all this. And like I said, Gene Siskel, uh, I think he was the one I was referring to who said something about it being more finely like coming into his own into the role or or whatever after. Uh, you know, 
I, I forgot if he said he was too stoic or too silly in the other ones, yeah. but um, I got it right here. But either way, it's it's that kind of thing, and I don't, I just don't know where I can possibly fall on this because right. watching it now th- this is this movie really confused me i'm watching it and i'm just like okay so like this is a podcast about movies from 40 years ago mm-hmm. <laughs> even if you don't aren't digging this right now or this isn't the thing you'd want to watch what what would your uh sort of reaction be back then and i i honestly have no idea was this considered a big budget spectacle like you know one of the one of the best looking movies of its day <laughs> or I mean, I we just, just did Return of the Jedi, and, yeah. and that movie, I'm sure higher budget and whatnot, but again, kind of night and day from from this movie, which is probably its closest counterpart of the year, I would think, in terms of a, big a, splashy, a big yeah, budget franchise, right. yeah, you know that sort of thing. Yeah, more so than Jaws three, right? <laughs> no, no, we didn't watch it, but oh, um. So Octopussy was the first Bond film released by MGM, which had absorbed United Artists, the previous oh. distributor of uh, the Bond films. Film earned slightly less than For Your Eyes Only, but still gross $187 million, uh, with $67.8 million in the United States and Canada. United Kingdom. Now, here's the interesting thing, and this is something I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. This same year, Never Say Never Again comes out, which is a... Yes non uh canon if you will bond remake of thunderball apparently yep. uh which is sean connery returning to the role for one more round and i don't let's not get too much into it because we may just end up fucking doing it in a couple months I, I think it came out in like november or something like that yeah um yeah okay so we'll we'll save our and i haven't seen it yet so i can't comment on it anyway but um I think it's funny that this performed better than that movie, which you think would have been sort of a coup having, uh, having uh, Connery back. The, yeah, Connery yeah. back. Gary Arnold of the Washington Post felt Octopussy was one of the snazziest, wittiest productions of the film series, wow. in which he praised John Glenn's direction. Um, Gene Siskel, reviewing for Chicago Tribune, awarded the film three stars out of four, stating the film was surprisingly entertaining. Surprising because in his previous five Bond appearances, Roger Moore has always come off as a smug stiff. <laughs> in Octopus, he more relaxes a bit. Uh, just as important, his role is subordinated to the film's many and extremely exciting action sequences. Octopus, he has the most sustained excitement in a Bond film since You Only Live Twice. Wow. However, he felt the character Octopussy was detrimental to the film. Uh, Variety felt the film's strong points were the spectacular aerial stunt work. Yeah, that that pre-credits uh, thing where he's flying that little plane around, dumb as it is. I mean, yeah, I was gonna say this is still an age without you know this is actual stuntmen doing some of this shit, and people yeah, were dying on their sure. sets a couple times throughout the franchise's history. But yeah, it's yeah, it's fun to see yeah, shit I mean, like that. Yeah, you watch it now and you're like, oh, look at this like little plane doing this stuff in 1983. But I'm sure it it had the same sort of captivating, exciting, you know, aura or whatever for audiences in '83. That when you watch a a Craig now, it's just obviously we've got much better uh, special effects and and the stunts they keep trying to just one up and one up and yeah. Um, 
But uh, the rest of the, the action scenes are well executed, but suffer from a sense of deja vu, as in a speeding train that recalls Sean Connery's daring do in The Great Train Robbery. <laughs> Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times felt the film proved to be business as usual, no better or worse than most of its predecessors. After all this time, it's amazing. The same old formula still plays. The gadgetry, the gorgeous girls, travelogue locations, uh, shameless double entendres. In this instance, octo entendres. <laughs> <laughs> Complimented Glenn's direction, uh, but further remark, two hours and 10 minutes, Octopussy seems a good 20 to 30 minutes too long. Now, that review right there is the one that I'm most in keeping with. Like I already said, it's, it seems no, no different, no better, no yes. worse, no, no, whatever, just fucking a bond movie on autopilot. And, um, I haven't gotten to it yet, but one of my main gripes with this movie was it could have easily chopped 20 minutes out of it or, or so, uh, it, it goes on way too long. So that was my, they all do though. Fucking even, even the ones today, every, every Craig fucking ones, bond movie yeah. is, 140 and some hours. minutes, yeah. 130. Well, even the Brazen ones are all two plus hours. Mm. And I don't care about a long movie. It's not about that, but it's like just because it's Bond doesn't mean you gotta stretch this shit out to Yeah. Like like we all get it. We we know what we're gonna see here. We know what's gonna happen. Like there it's just Yeah. It's it's frustrating when these movies try to take these sort of franchise tent poles and turn them into something so so much more epic and uh they don't earn that. It's just a lot more of a, a convoluted plot dragging out for longer than it already needed to, you know? Yep. But. That's very aptly summarized. That's, that's a problem with a lot of movies. Yeah. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 42% based on 50 reviews. So uh, I guess the critical consensus is rotten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, okay, I kind of jumped the gun there. We we got off the the topic of the actual movie itself, but I don't know if this is one we need to sit here and like summarize the entire oh, yeah. plot over. Especially uh, when it comes to these kind of movies, you got yeah. you got all sorts of convoluted meetings with you know UN, yeah. and then followed by a trip to right. I, I half the movie, I yeah, half the movie, I couldn't tell what country we were in there's there's four or five instances yeah. where i was lost track of where we were like oh we're back in america now running from okay <laughs> right yep yeah and then it's stuff like he he's immediately in bed with uh megda <laughs> is that the she's blonde the... one yeah so before he finally meets octopussy there's the girl who's uh with the main villain here I didn't really buy them sort of jumping in bed together after one meal. They didn't even seem to have that much spark or chemistry, but then you find out she was sort of chemistry, playing right? him or whatever anyway. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. I mean, like, whether whether or not that had the reveal that she was screwing him or... I mean, not technically screwing him, but... <laughs> Quote-unquote, screwing him. Right. You know what I mean? Screwing him. <laughs> yeah, screwing him over. Not sex. The other, Yeah, right. so there, there you go. Thanks, Peter. Uh-huh. Um, it still seemed like it was just you, you think a guy like Bond would have picked up on that or, or whatever. I don't know, maybe he's just used to it being so easy. But. <laughs> right. It's not the first time a chick's turned on him either. Right. Right, that too. You think he'd be more uh, watching out for the, the honey pot or whatever. Exactly. They just carry this priceless Fabergé egg around without a case in in like hands and pockets. At one point they show uh Bond watching the bad guy get out of the car with it and he, he just he's casually tossing it around like a like, like you'd toss a, a, a baseball that you're right. carrying in your hand or something. 
Yeah. It's fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah. They, the story was, uh, yeah, the the Russian. <laughs> it was there was a lot going on. That uh that uh, actor who plays the Russian. Let me pull. Stephen, I got it. Stephen Burkoff. Yeah. So he's in he, He's still alive. He's eighty-five years old. Crazy. Oh wow. Um. Yeah. So filmography: Beverly Hills Cop, Victor Maitland. Where I will always remember him, and no fucking buddy else is going to remember him from, is the nineteen ninety-five mega flop Fair Game, starring Cindy Crawford, Cindy Crawford and yeah. William Baldwin. <laughs> now, Peter, here's where we dovetail into. An interesting thing because the book that Fair Game is based on, I think it's called Fair Game, is also the basis of Cobra. Yes, I saw the that. movie you just watched. Yeah, I saw that, and I'm like, wait a second, and I instantly dismissed yeah. it though. Mm-hmm. But because there's like another movie mistake. called Fair Game, or is that all? Is it all essentially based on this book? Oh, I don't know what what the other fair game is, but uh, I mean, fair game is a pretty generic title, so right. Um, but anyway, I just I remember him always in he's in Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Um, he's in shit right, like yeah. Underworld, and you know, I like he's he's one of those guys that every time you see him pop up, um, he's in a Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, so he's working with Kubrick. Um, yeah. Anyway, his his uh, he's got that. I don't know what you call it, like a mole or a skin tag or something right on his forehead. So you always know him when yep. you see him. <laughs> very, yeah, very crazy eyes and that mole on his head. Yep. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, I feel like we're kind of doing this movie a little disservice by not at least trying to talk about the plot here. Um. Uh, fucking, I don't, I don't even know where to start with it though. There's, so there's this Fabergé egg. <laughs> <laughs> being auctioned in in London, uh, MI6 in, it suspects some sort of Soviet involvement. Um, they send James Bond to identify the seller. The auction Bond swaps the fake egg for the real one. Subsequently, engages in a bidding war with uh, an exiled Afghan prince named Kamal Khan, and that guy. He he pays upwards of five hundred thousand dollars for a counterfeit. Bond follows Khan to his palace in India. Yeah, then this whole business about octopusy. Like I don't I don't fucking know, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> he sees a tattoo on the on the chick's back at the beginning. Mishka? No, no, wait, Mishka. Magda. Well, that's the one he the Meg Magda. So he, he yeah. goes to bed with her. She's she's a uh, Khan's assistant. Or whatever, okay. or, or I don't know what, what you call her. Goes to bed with her. She, I think she just goes to bed with him to what? Steal the egg? Because then she like rope dopes out of his like balcony on her like uh, trapeze of a dress, <laughs> yeah. or sheet or whatever she's wrapped in. Right. And then she gets in the car with Khan. Right. So did she mm-hmm. take the egg at that point? Is that what happened? Um. Yeah, but that was a fake. That was the fake egg that had the. Uh... I thought he bought the fake egg. <laughs> one of the <laughs> eggs, one of the eggs, they put the mic, the one they put the microphone in that Q put the microphone yeah. in and stuff. That's the so one that, that she stole. Fake egg? Um, 
Well, the initial one was a fake egg. Right, the one where the one the clown's carrying, right? No, no. So at auction, when when Khan bought an egg for five hundred thousand dollars, Bond swipes the fake egg for the real one and subsequently engages in a bidding war with exiled Afghan prince named Kamal Khan, forcing Khan to pay five hundred thousand dollars for the counterfeit. Bond follows Khan to his palace in India. Bond defeats Khan in a game of backgammon using Khan's loaded dice. Bond and his MI6 contact VJ escape Khan's bodyguard Gobinda, who I like that guy, by the way. Later, Khan's associate Magda seduces Bond. Bond follows Magda to steal the real Fabergé egg, which is fitted with Q's listening and tracking device. Gobina knocks Bond unconscious and takes him to Khan's palace. After Bond escapes, he listens in on the bug and discovers that Khan works with Orlov, the Soviet general, seeking to expand Soviet domination into Western Europe. What's the name? Oh. I was just, you got me thinking about the Gobinda guy. He was he was pretty awesome in this movie for a Yeah, I like that dude. For a bad guy. He's still alive at the age of 77. Nice. I don't know, man. This movie's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Like... I mean, it's all about the action sequences, right? I mean, who gives a fuck about the plot or the the egg or or whatever, but... um, I don't know. There's that weird scene where uh, Bond gives... gives, whoever was kind of like helping him out a bunch of money, he goes, that should keep you in curry for a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is our second Louis Jordan film covered on the big four O. Oh yeah. The other being swamp thing. Ooh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, there's a, scene in this film where Roger Moore uh, is swinging through trees and does a fucking Tarzan yell which is <laughs> an 80 yard piece of shit yeah it's stupid and not funny and I don't know why they right. put that in there goofy man yeah just unnecessary and the, the whole whole hunting scene was silly and kind of dumb uh, you know yeah. what I mean about the, the first several action sequences not really having any consequences and they're more so there just for Comic relief until, you know, towards the end when the stakes finally kick in. Um, then we get to uh, Octopussy. She's like, my father loved octopuses. Octopi? Octopods? His pet name for me was Octopussy. Which is insane! That's uh-huh. your fucking dad. Like, Also, let's talk about the title of this movie for a minute. Like, I, I, I get the double entendre and all, and, and yeah, but that's still... That word right there in the title... Uh, and it's crazy for 1983. <laughs> yeah. Never mind, you know, now and it's especially a mainstream franchise movie. Like people are just like, I want to go see Octopussy. Like I get that James Bond is all about the double entendre and shit. Right, like that, but this but, one like, is a more extreme one, especially for that time. Right, that's fucking the name wise. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's something that's always boggled my mind too. Like I just said Octopussy. Like I just said Pussy in front of my mom and nobody. Bad at an eye. Yeah. Like, as long as I said octopusy, I could say pussy. <laughs> well, just the, the origin story of my father loved octopuses, so his pet name for me was octopusy. That's fucking weird, man. Can you That's imagine calling weird. your daughter octopusy? Uh, not, yeah, not, like, not at all. Like, hey, octopusy. Also, that's not a, a a good nickname because nicknames should be short. There's so many syllables in that. 
Like what? What's her name? Like Jane or some shit? Just call her that. <laughs> her real name? It's described as sultry. Just not do octopusy and leave this episode at our hour and a half discussion about uh, <laughs> trading places. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Why don't they say her actual fucking name? Yeah, I don't, don't think she has one. It oh. is Octopussy. Oh. I think that's what she's known as throughout the entire movie. Jewel smuggler and wealthy businesswoman. Well, thanks. Yeah. Wikipedia. She's known as Octopussy. Yep. But she somehow has this like insane, um, I don't know, like island resort full of <laughs> ne'er-do-well, uh, what do you call it, like uh, a henchman and shit. Um, wait, what does she do on that island? I mean, I know it's all women, but what is their main? I don't know. Stop They're like reforming. Oh, what's happening in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> so listen, when Randy uh... Santoni comes out, I'm like, this, <laughs> this movie's starting to get funny. Like he had some great lines. <laughs> Just transition right into Cobra. Wrong movie. Yeah. <laughs> The amount of uh, navel gazing, or should I just say, like, boob gazing uh, the camera does in this movie is pretty funny. Like, there's a scene where Roger Moore just puts, like, a, a camera right on some girl's tits. Uh-huh. For all the TVs to see. Yeah. And Q's yeah. like, grow up, 007. Yeah. That uh, yo-yo blade thing is, is pretty cool. <laughs> that was pretty cool. But as usual with these movies, there's got to be an easier, more effective way to kill people than that shit. <laughs> all right. Throwing knives doesn't have a hundred percent kill success rate. Uh, right. Dropping a yo-yo. You just think a gun or yeah. you know whatever it would be. Right. I get that's part of the you know fun and charm of the series or whatever. I'm not trying to pick it apart for not being realistic. That's not the way you approach a James Bond movie. Right. But, I mean, yeah. still have fun with it. Come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> I always think it's funny when they take. Uh, He'll get shot at. I mean, it's every action movie. <laughs> you know, he's taking fire and then just turns around one shot. Boom, that guy's gone. Then boom, one yeah. shot. That guy's done. <laughs> yeah, to the extent that they keep talking about how the action sequences are really great. Again, I don't know what it was like in 83, but this movie is basic at best. I guess it's got some good editing and, um, you know, they hide maybe some of the stunts well to yeah. be convincing. But it's really not that rousing of a action adventure. The the stuff on the train at the end and all the stuff that's supposed to be the big sort of climactic action sequences. I wasn't ever really all that right invested in any of that. Uh, Bond gives an entire freaking monologue explaining the Russian general's plan. There's that scene at the end where uh, Bond corners the Russian general. Mm-hmm. And then there, there's this moment where he's just like, of course, our early warning systems rule out the possibility of a bomb having been launched from Russia or anywhere else. They'll assume correctly that it was an American bomb triggered accidentally, leaving the European border undefended for you to walk across millions of people and be killed with a handful of old men in Moscow. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Like, fucking hell. <laughs> yeah, it was no. just... Yeah, that's... Like, let's wrap this all up for the audience <laughs> right. real quick. <laughs> I'm I'm assuming they don't derive uh, much from the books other than the general story, right? Yeah, there was something in here about how uh, Octopussy was actually mentioned in one of the earlier uh, novels of a mm. different title that became a different movie. I'll I'll jump back into it in a minute. But uh, more in the monkey costume. One week after the guy in the monkey costume, yeah. the man with two brains. 
and uh, just before the guy in the monkey costume in uh, trading places. Uh, all right, here's here's the last thing I wrote about this movie. You ready? All this right, movie I'm is ready. dumb. It had me for a bit in the middle, but it's at least twenty minutes too long, if not not a full half hour. It didn't hate it or anything. There's some fun stuff here and there, but it mostly feels like Bond autopilot. And by the end, it's just goofy. It goes on too long. Two stars. Yep. Perfect. That's exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I would give it. That's a lot of my same thoughts. It's just playing to the hits. It's just a. It's just. Yeah. There's nothing spectacular. Goes on way too long. But. That said, though, I haven't seen the movies surrounding, so I don't know if it's better than, uh, you know, A View to Kill, which apparently the consensus is it is, or yes. uh, I don't know what came before this Moonraker or some shit. Like I there was, uh, you only I've always heard that one twice, or for your eyes only. I don't know. Uh, Moonraker. Well, is they the... were like, this is the best movie since you only yeah. live twice, or so. It, that can't have been the last one, or that wouldn't make. No, much that was, sense that was a Connery one. Um, I think it's for your eyes only. I know Sheena East. Yes. The one before this was For Your Eyes Only. Okay. Also directed by right. John Glenn. Yeah, he really had a run there for a while. That movie made almost $200 What are they paying that guy? John Glenn? Yeah, I mean, the movies were huge. Yeah. Oh, he even did... He even did Living Daylights and License to Kill. Is that it, right? And it is right. That's why I just... <laughs> trust the internet, man. Interesting. Yeah. What were your thoughts, real quick, on Dalton as Bond? You said you saw. Uh, yeah, I did way back when. I don't remember him that well. I know License to Kill has a big, you know, sort of like, yeah, this is kind of dark, uh, you know, vengeful Bond mm-hmm. or whatever. I think there's a, a contingent of people who think that one is is really good, and I would agree. I, uh, from what I remember, I remember liking it, but I haven't seen either one of those since probably early 90s right i don't think i've seen living daylights since yeah maybe even late 80s i know i saw it in the theater but maybe one other time after that but living daylights i'm sorry license to kill i saw five or six times once yeah once in the theater and then taped it on one of those channels and would watch it i just don't think james bond's movies are my kind of thing i like them but yeah, like I think we don't care about right. Them. Me and you saw one of them. Uh, <laughs> I don't even must have been the one in '99, whatever that one was. Oh, I was gonna say, you know which one I really like is uh, "The World Is Not Enough." Is that from '99? That's the probably that's the one with Brosnan and I think Denise Richards. Yeah, does he say Christmas um, comes more than once a year? Yeah. yeah. Yep. She's not very good, but I liked I liked the flow of that movie. I love the opening sequence. It has a great uh, uh, I don't know what the word is like gotcha opener. Yeah. It, it starts out in this bank, and that's cool. Then it leads to this like river chase. That's neat. Then there's like a big uh, ski chase in the middle of that, and that's cool, kind of classic Bond. And then by the end, he's like Brosnan's like super pissed, and he turns into kind of you know quote unquote vengeful Bond and stuff, which. People don't give him enough credit for being kind of a badass in that scene or yeah. you know, kind of going off book. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought that one was really satisfying and kind of covered all the bases and everything. And, and I've seen that one multiple times since. What's the one in 97? Like Tomorrow Never Dies. That's Tomorrow Never Dies with Terry Hatcher. And yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and then he did that one. Was in, okay. Besides Goldeneye, he did whatever the one is in 2002. That's the one with Holly Berry. That movie's terrible. Yeah. That's where he's got like an invisible car, and it's like a. Like, I liked him surfing. as Bond, but yeah, the, I didn't really like Goldeneye, to be honest with you. I thought I'd like it a lot more. Yeah, I think that one's kind of overrated, too. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's good. I can see why people like it sure. in terms of like a reboot of the franchise. And, um, but when you take all those movies together, I think the one that really kind of sustains the best parts of it, I think The World Is Not Enough yeah. has, has all the, the hallmarks. It's got the silly, it's got the serious, it's got, uh, you know, yeah, okay, I think there's there's probably a better villain and better um, Bond girls in, in GoldenEye, but even Tomorrow Never Dies has, uh, is it Michelle Yeoh who's in that yep. one? Yep. She's, she's good, uh, but I don't know, something about GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies, they just have like cool parts and pieces but it doesn't really come to me as a whole that i want to like rewatch that movie over and over again they don't they don't have the fun factor right. i guess that the world is not enough does so yeah I think the world's not enough has a good balance of all the all the shit he was obviously better suited suited than uh than dalton i did like dalton i don't think he really got a chance to fully he only did two of them but uh right. brosnan was definitely a good a good he was always game for it you know he was always seemed like he was having fun yeah those Dalton movies didn't make money for some reason I don't yeah. know what the problem was there if audiences didn't like him or if it was too soon after like I think they I think it was more just like Bond fatigue, fatigue yeah it was yeah yeah it needed it needed a shot in the arm and, and it needed a couple years away which it did yeah although I mean Octopus he made a bunch of money and um I'm sure I mean, View to well, a Kill did let's... too yeah, I didn't look that one up, but um, yeah, well, let's let's talk about Octopussy's box office real quick. Okay. Um, budget twenty seven point five million dollars, which that's pretty huge. Yes, it that's is. Almost a, you know, it's like an eighty five million dollar budget today. Uh, box office though, one hundred eighty seven point five million. That would take us to somewhere around you know five plus these days. So, you know, you spend uh, eighty five to make. 500 plus million i suppose that's okay yeah. just like if you spend 27.5 million to make 187.5 right um all right peter yeah for the weekend of june 10th 1983 <laughs> what do you think the number one movie return of the jedi was? you are correct uh, Return of the Jedi made $11.9 million that weekend. It's up to 101.680 at this point. Oof. And uh, it's in three weeks of release. So, so yeah, we were kind of talking about how that movie, you know, kind of came out with a $23 million weekend or whatever, and that seemed a little small, but it's definitely just holding its own, making uh, 20s of millions of dollars every, every week. Or yeah. Or day. Yeah. So, well, whatever it works out to, I guess. Um, what do you think number two was this weekend? Mm, Octopussy. Correct. Yes. 8.9 opening. Okay. And as we said, it goes on to make 100 and what did I say? 27 or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Uh, trading places is number three. 7.3 million opening weekend. Uh, it is, its total gross is 9.3 zero four so it must have come out on like a wednesday or something oh yeah that's weird what do you think number four is 
Mm. War games. Close. It's Psycho 2. Oh. Which has been besting war games two weekends in a row here, staying ahead of it. I'm surprised sure. that movie is making money. I would have thought that'd be kind of a... You know, Psycho 2, yeah. But, yeah. It made $4.898 million that weekend. Uh, it's up to 16.687, two weeks in release. Pretty respectable. I'm guessing the budget was low. We didn't we didn't cover it. We talked about it, but uh, might know a little more about it if we did. Uh, number five. Um. <laughs> shit. Uh. It's something we've done. Oh wait, it's 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 something. It's um. You just said it. Yep. Fuck. War games. Yes. All right. <laughs> 4.824 million. It's up to 14.163. I forget what we said that thing topped out at. Number six. Mm. Oh, Flashdance. I keep forgetting about Flashdance. Correct. Was it really? <laughs> nice. <laughs> yep. Another 2.1 million. It's up to 44.415. Nine weeks in release. Number seven. Um, is it something we've done? Yes. Fuck. Um, <laughs> I feel like this is should be obvious. I don't know. I need a hint. It's not obvious. There's like three of them that keep like dancing around each other here. Uh, we did it. Um, we're surprised it's as successful as it is. I guess. Tootsie. <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> it's in its fifth week of release. Okay. Uh, so think back to I guess five episodes ago. Valley Girls. <laughs> no. <laughs> also, it's Valley Girl. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Damn it. It's Blue Thunder, Peter. One point nine million, thirty-three point four three million so far in five weeks. And that's at seven. It's really the number seven. Yeah. yeah, seventh. It's weird that that is 1.9 and at number seven. All right, what do you think number eight is? This is a movie we have also done mm. recently. Recently. It's fallen 54% this weekend in weekend two. Oh, this is weekend two. So all I have to do is remember what the hell... What we did last weekend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which was War Games and Man with Two Brains. Correct. 1.6 million. It's up to 6.4. Two weeks release. I think we said it tops out at around 10. That's pretty sad for a movie that is literally the best movie we've reviewed on this podcast so far. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know about all that, but it's uh, it's still in my top three, I would say, for, for the year. I've talked to a couple of people uh, who've seen it and liked it since uh, last week, so. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I really liked Return of the Jedi. I was really surprised with how much I liked that, uh, especially not being a Star Wars guy. But I'm trying to think what else we did this year, if there's anything I'd really... There's, there's some other movies we really liked, isn't there? I don't know why I'm blanking on this, but... Um, but yeah, in terms of... About... Like... Yeah, best of 83. It, whatever it is, it's all out of the top 20. Right, right. So, 
Number 10 is... Oh, sorry. What do you think number 9 is? Um, We are getting into the summer. It's an old movie. Um, or like older. a re-release? I don't know. But E.T.? No, it's not like, you know, years old. It's just... Oh, it's Tootsie. It is Tootsie. Son of a bitch. Tootsie is number 9. With uh, it didn't even crack a million this weekend. It's it's at nine, uh, nine hundred forty-eight thousand. But it's up to one hundred seventy-three. Twenty-six weeks in release. Now here's the interesting thing. Last week, ET was like a spot or two right below Tootsie. That's not even on the chart anymore. I don't know if they just like pulled it out of theaters or what, but I'm not sure how it was like number ten the week before, right. or or whatever it was, twelve or thirteen or something, and and now it's gone but number 10 is breathless which makes another uh 798 000 for an 18 million uh 18.153 million in five weeks um that movie i think is overperforming frankly but <laughs> yeah uh number 11 is valley girl another 742,000. it's in seven weeks of release it's up to 11.95 i think that is done around uh, 12 or 13 somewhere still smoking is number 12 Another 715,000. It's at 13.5 million, six weeks. Chain Heat drops to number 13 from number nine last week. So it's at three weeks now. It's up to 6.149. That goes on to like seven and a half or something, but it's on a $2.5 million budget. My Tutor, which <laughs> neither one of us could figure out what it was a couple weeks ago, <laughs> is up to almost $20 million. Number 14. It's been out for 15 weeks. 15 is that Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, yeah, which is supposed which... to be terrible, but I don't know. It's it's going to get uh, at this rate. I don't, I don't know where it taps out, but it's got to be over 17. Right. So four weeks in release. It's up to 16.475. Gandhi is 16, 52.767, 27 weeks in release. And then, uh, I mean, that's pretty much it. We're the rest of the top 20 here isn't much. I don't know what happened to ET if they just pulled it out of theaters or what, but it seems weird if it was at number 13 making a million dollars or whatever and some yeah. of this crap. Here, I'll tell you this. The number 19 movie is called Baby It's You. It made $58,000. <laughs> it's at a total of $1.124 after 15 weeks in release. And uh, that movie is still in theaters, but apparently ET is no longer. So I don't know. It was probably just out last week for some special... Yeah. yeah. In limited Memorial Day, or... yeah, exactly. It's back in theaters mm-hmm. for the holiday. Everybody, go <laughs> rush out and see it. We made another two million bucks or whatever. Um, okay, maybe a few has Robert Downey Jr. in it. In one of his yeah, first roles. I think roles. I kind of remember the uh, yeah, I remember the the box art or whatever that was. Yeah. What do we uh, what do we have next week, Ron? <laughs> I don't know, Peter. I left the list somewhere else. All right. Let me, uh, we should have talked about this uh, in pre. In did the you pre- write it down? Uh, no. I just remember you had it written down on a notebook. Do you remember this? It was like a yellow piece of paper or yellow. <laughs> I did. Did I okay. send it to you? No. You just showed it to me, and I was just wondering if you knew. <laughs> right now because you had like we had our schedule oh, yeah i it's yeah i i know i don't oh. know where it is right now <laughs> all right 
June 24th, we have Port oh, I think this 2 is... and Twilight Zone. Yep, yep, yep. That's what we're going to, right? Yep. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> All right. Next week, we will be back with Twilight Zone, the movie, and Porky's 2. Now, listeners, if you have heard our, our initial Porky's episode, we both were surprised by how much we hated that fucking movie. So I'm not sure if uh, Porky's 2 will stack up or... Maybe it'll shock us. What? Yeah. Never know. I mean, the real reason I didn't like Porky so much was because like, its legend is largely overstated it's not yes. very funny it's not very sexy it's just it's kind of a cheap shitty movie and yep. i just didn't like it that much but maybe porky's too and they're like yeah let's just deliver more of the goods or whatever and it's just going to be kind of the typical sequel that goes like bigger badder whatever bigger badder i don't know maybe yeah. that'll be a funnier movie yeah bigger badder bolder maybe it'll be a better movie so <laughs> we shall see yep we shall see. That's our motto, man. <laughs> I like it. Listeners, please remember to rate, like, subscribe. Subscribe's the big one, I think. I don't know. Start a t-shirt making company. First uh, line of a thousand shirts says, listen to the big 4-0 with Ron and Peter. Uh, give those out to people at parades and uh, other gatherings. And Lots um, of festivals coming you'll up, done people. Your, you'll have done your part, yeah. I mean, if it helps, you can write uh, one call, that's all, on the back. Yeah. <laughs> people seem to love that that free shit. I know. It's the dumbest shit I've every, ever seen. Every stupid festival I go to, there's a line around the block to get a free like Goober t-shirt or uh, yeah. bottle or whatever the fuck. We need to get out on that. We have to come up with a catchy phrase that somehow, like, we shall see. <laughs> Listeners. <laughs> Listeners. Here's what you do. You go into a Planned Parenthood. <laughs> <laughs> This is where we need some sort of wrap up music <laughs> start playing him yeah. out. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's see. Well, I've already we've already gotten so big with the cop car and the banner and all that. What else can yeah. we do? Um, I don't know. What's the alphabet soup? Make sure all your kids are spelling the big four O with that soup. And if they don't have numbers, yeah. do F O U R and then O. The big four. O. Oh, I got a good idea. You know how they do the um uh sex reveals in like a gender uh, reveals, yes. Like a balloon. Gender yeah. there you go, gender reveals. Yeah. Listen, here's what I want you guys to do. Anybody who's pregnant out there, when you do your gender reveal, don't have blue or pink. Just have that shit open up, you know, whatever it is, a balloon or I, I don't know what happens. But in there, we'll say, listen to the big four. And then everybody at your gender reveal party will be like, oh, shit, I got to listen to this podcast. And yeah. that, that'll, be, that'll cheering. be helpful. I mean, that's that's a yeah. good start. Yeah. Yep. Listen, um, I, would, I would definitely implore people to do that. That uh, I would tell them not to, to listen the... to the Octopussy episode because we really didn't have <laughs> anything together for that one. <laughs> there wasn't much to put. 
I apologize for the plot, but story-wise, I mean, uh, as in terms of how it all plays out, it's like I a, mean, normally I'm like writing all that shit down like a madman, but that one I was just kind of like, hey, you know what? We'll just talk about James Bond in broad strokes, and we did that, and I think we did an okay we, job. Yeah, I applaud our efforts, okay. listeners. What? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's good. I like it. Please remember to rate, like, subscribe, run out of the street, tell your uh, uh, neighbors in your jammies, and then uh, go to a gender reveal party and sabotage the white, fuck, the pink and <laughs> blue. Yeah. <laughs> <First> yeah. <laughs> and it's got to say, listen to the big four o. <laughs> yep. You got this, people. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh i'll talk to you later i'm sorry you couldn't have any beer throughout this podcast hey that's all right it uh or, or really post 7 30 or whatever yeah that's all right i appreciate it it uh well I at least we know now people. that uh one of us being sober is not the uh thing that determines <laughs> a success whether it's a good show or not so. yeah right. sometimes the movies themselves just aren't they don't elicit much yeah Fuck Octopussy. Fuck Octopussy. It really, really screwed us up. <laughs> was that right. was that your like octopus? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. oh no, I thought I thought I saw you doing like a <laughs> eight arms all flipping the movie up. <laughs> all right, I'm I'm turning off this recording, but <laughs> Okay.